Welcome back to the show. This is Brett Hawes, and we are uh, talking today with Karen Hurd about all things nutrition. Karen has a very interesting background, and uh, you can read this on her website, which I'm going to uh, put the links in the show notes so you can check that out. But she has uh, she's a graduate from the American Academy of Nutrition, um, and she has done comprehensive studies in nutrition. She also has a master's degree in biochemistry as well. Um, she has uh, she's prepping currently for her PhD in biochemistry. She's got a Bachelor of Arts in languages, and she also served for four years as an officer in the military intelligence uh, corps. So we actually do talk about all of those things. Um, that's part of her story in the beginning, and uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a, it's a, a fascinating background which really segues into what she does now. Um, so I think that you're going to love today's episode for the simple fact that it's literally two nutritionists who have between them probably close to 50 years of experience, literally just having a conversation. And so I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Um, to be quite frank, I had a few things that I wanted to talk to Karen about. And the rest was all just really freestyle, um, you know, just going into different areas, talking about what we should eat. You know, people are so confused these days with what to eat. And every person, nutritionist, practitioner, supplement manufacturer, um, whoever, always seems to have their unique thing as to why we should eat that particular way. So oftentimes we'll find that they're selling a product, they're selling a program, they're selling supplements or something to that effect. And what I think you're gonna get out of this conversation is really just taking it right back to basics, right? And so um, I'll just sort of give you some highlights of what we discuss in this episode. Uh, first of all, we sort of open things up with Karen talking about her journey and how she actually got into uh, this space and doing what she does um, about 30 years ago. And so uh, pr very interesting story, um, very heartwarming, in fact, because uh, I can only imagine as a parent uh, exactly what she had to deal with and the sort of ramifications thereafter. But we also then talk a lot about you know how she just grew in popularity and and how she's literally helped thousands and thousands of people's uh, people over the years and we then start getting into some of the sort of core philosophy right so you know what should we eat is is the sort of core theme that we revolve around and um we spend uh, interestingly we spend a good chunk of time talking about lectins we talk a good uh, spend a good chunk of time talking about beans right so again that's a quite a controversial food in this day and age so we talk about lectins in foods and why we actually need lectins and why they're not necessarily bad okay um, Karen and I don't always agree on everything but I find that we actually have quite a cordial discussion and we come to some sort of mutual understanding um, w with regards to certain things the other thing that we actually spend uh, time talking about is essential oils which is very interesting so essential oils um, I think what Karen has to say is probably gonna blow your mind and if you're really really into essential oils and you're using them all the time you should 100% listen to what she has to say um, yeah so so I'm just gonna leave it at that the other thing that we spend time uh, talking about today as well is supplements 
okay, which is very interesting. So should we use supplements? Should we not use supplements? Uh, Karen is pretty hard line with her position of no supplements required. And of course, I push back a little bit in that conversation as well um, with regards to, you know, our soil is less nutrient dense than it was before. We know that there's been topsoil erosion, uh, mineral depletion in the soil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, generally speaking, yeah, I actually thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I think you will as well. So if you're feeling confused about what to eat, um, if you're interested in essential oils, you know, keto versus vegan diets and whatnot, I think you're going to have a very, very interesting um, time listening to this episode. So as always, uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please, please, please uh, share this with your friends, your family, community. You can post this to Facebook. You can tweet about this. You can post this to Instagram, which um, thank you for those of you who have been sharing the podcast through Instagram. I really appreciate it, you know, adding to your story and so forth. And uh, yeah, just uh, subscribe, leave us a review and um, help me to keep uh, bringing more awesome guests like Karen. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. And uh, here is Karen Hurd. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, I'm glad to be a part of the show. Thanks for having me. Hmm. So, um, you know, just getting familiar with what you've been doing, some of the work, your e-courses, and also simply, you know, having 30 years of, of background in this field, um, I've come to appreciate a little bit more about the sort of breadth and depth of uh, what you do. But perhaps for our listeners who don't know you, um, can you just sort of give us a, a bit of a potted bio, if you will, um, a bit of background on yourself? Sure, sure. Um I actually graduated from high schools um, at the highest honors, was the sixth in my class of 600, went on to college and decided to major in Spanish, of all things, and majored in Spanish, went into the United States Army as an officer. I was a part of the Reserve Officer Training Corps and was in the United States Army for four years and in that time part of the Military Intelligence Corps. Um, and became for my battalion, sometimes when you're an officer, not sometimes, all the time, when you're an officer, you have to take on extra duties. And one of my assigned extra duties is that I had to be the nuclear, chemical, biological, defense, warfare officer. What a mouthful. Whoa, crazy. <laughs> nuclear, biological, chemical, defense. Because the United States not planning on using nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, or biological weapons, but if they were used against our soldiers, what would be our defense against them? And because of being assigned to be for our battalion, which is a 500 man, we call it man, there were men and women in the battalion, but a 500 person battalion, they had to send me to school to learn everything that I could about nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. And so I excelled in that school, graduated top of the class, and came back to be the battalion's, they call it NBC officer, nuclear, biological, chemical officer. And so that's where my first I was always interested in high school. I did really well and was doing all the, you know, advanced college, you know, get ready for college. And But I decided I really should have gone into chemistry, but I thought, hey, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do, I'll speak a little Spanish instead. And so, you know, you're young. I was a kid, you know, graduating when I was 18. You know, you're a kid, you just run off and do crazy things. So anyway, but when I got in the United States Army and learned about all of this with the warfare and what like a nerve agent could do at the cellular level or what a biological agent could do, and then what radiation does. Because in a nuclear in the nuclear fallout, there's tons of very harmful radiation. I became, my interest was very much 
which increased. And so I finished my tour in the Army, got out with Army Commendation Medal, decided I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And so I had one child, two child, and my third child was born. And we had um, a lot of, we had moved into a, a home. It wasn't a new home. It was an older home. But we had only been there a few weeks. And it's like, where are all these little tiny carpet beetles coming from? All these bugs. They were everywhere. I mean, they opened up the drawers in your bedroom. They were there in the kitchen drawers, all through the carpet. They were everywhere. They just, they're just inundated. It's like we moved into a bug-infested house. So I called a local exterminator, and there was some hesitancy on my part because I was very well aware because of my background in nuclear biological warfare that I knew what they would be using. And so, and but, you know, you don't want to live with all those bugs because you can only step on so many, smack so many with the fly swatter. You know, it's just like gross bugs and so they came they, they they came and inspected first they said you got a really bad bug problem i said yeah i know that's why i called you and it was a you know, <laughs> local terminator and they used a uh something called dursban 2e which was the what choice it's um uh, chemical pesticide and it killed all the bugs but and we had to be out of the house. You know, they say, I said, is this harmful? No, it's completely safe. You know, they give you all the completely safe speech. And, you know, I'm thinking, I hope it's completely safe. And be out of the house for this many hours. And we did all that. We came back in the house. And all of us didn't feel very well. And my littlest one, who was 18 months old at the time, she just got worse and worse. I wasn't feeling well. Nobody in the family was feeling well. And she started to get symptoms. Brett, symptoms that I recognize because this is exactly the symptoms I trained my troops to recognize for nerve agent poisoning. You get the pinpoint eye, the pupils turn to pinpoints, you get a slight cough, you get diarrhea, eventually your lungs fill with fluid and you die. And I said, this is the symptom of nerve agent poisoning and seizures come along with it. And when she went into a grand mal seizure, I knew this is nerve agent poisoning. She went into a grand mal seizure. You know, oftentimes infants will have a febrile seizure. You know, it's just a, a if they're pretty common the last less than one minute. This was not, she was 18 months old and she seized and she seized and she seized over an hour. She was in a seat. We're talking grand mall. Okay. We're talking, you know, all four limbs jerking, frothing at the mouth, eyes roll back in her head. Of course, soon as, the, as soon as she went into seizure, I mean, we rushed to the ER and the emergency room physician he didn't even know what to do. I said, you have to give her atropine because that is the remedy. You know, they're like, okay, this is a wild mother here, you know, <laughs> atropine. What? She didn't even know the way. What does she know? I said, this is going to be the antidote. They said, we, even if I gave her atropine, we don't even have any in the hospital. We don't even have that type of stuff. Now, troops carry that with them all the time. I mean, you have an atropine injection to, to, in case you're exposed to something like this. And they said, We've given her the maximum amount of Valium. She hasn't come out of the seizure. And he said, I don't think she's going to survive because you, if you keep seizing like that, the lactic acid builds up and then eventually, and her lungs were filling with fluid at the same time, she would have died. And so it was terrible. And so he had his back turned. She's on, they, they should be strapped to the ER table because she was bouncing all over the place. She's in a seizure, you know. And they had her strapped up to the table and he turned his back he was you know on his computer doing something over there and he just told us that she wasn't going to survive he'd given her the maximum amount of valium my husband and i joined hands over her and we, he prayed my husband said god you gave her to us 
you can take her away. And she stopped seizing. She just stopped seizing. And then when she stopped jerking around, the physician, he rolled, turned around very quickly. And he said, oh, my, he, she stopped seizing. We need to do a spinal tap. Because they couldn't do any testing when you're seizing. You can't, can't hold them still. You know what I mean? This is a movie. And we, we had to do a spinal tap. And, you know, we got to do a chest X-ray. And sure enough, she had double pneumonia. Her lungs were filling with fluid. How would both lungs? So this is a nerve agent. This is a nerve agent. This is exactly what happens. And they said, ma'am, no, no, no. I, you know, you, you really don't know what you're talking about. I said, I do know what I'm talking about. Please listen to me. I was very rational. I didn't get wild. And, you know, you've been around people that get really all wild. Mm -hmm. worked mm -hmm. out. I was very calm. I said, listen, this is something that can happen. You need to take a cholinesterate level. You have to take a cholinesterate level because it's a liver, it's a test on the liver that will tell you whether or not you've been poisoned or not. And he said, nope, we're not going to do that. And I said, all she needs to be is on, she needs to be on an anti-seizure medication. We're going to write this up as a febrile seizure. I said, it wasn't a febrile seizure. She never had a temperature. Well, I know she doesn't have a temperature, but you know, it would just be how fast her temperature would rise from one point to another. She can still be within the normal limits. I said, this is not a febrile seizure. We're going to put her on phenobarbital, which is an anti-seizure med. And put her on phenobarbital and, you know, send us home and said, just go home, patting me on the head like a dog, you know? Wow. And so we went back to the same house where every square inch of the carpet had been sprayed for these carpet beetles. By the way, the carpet beetles were dead. <laughs> and everybody else was going to die too. Um, so we had not been there a very short time. And then Ruth is the name of my little girl. She was 18 months old at the time. Her eyes went to pinpoints again. She started with the diarrhea. She started with a slight cough, but she didn't seize this time, and I knew what was going to happen. I would put her in her crib for a nap, and then I would go in there an hour or two later, and she would be dead because her lungs would have filled with fluid, and she wouldn't seize because she was on loading doses, a large amount of phenobarbital. And I thought, I am not doing this. I don't care what the physician said over at the hospital. He does not know. I am walking out of this house. So I gathered up Ruth and my other two young children, and we walked out of that house, and I did not return until I got to the bottom of it. I started to call every poison control agency that there could be and asked help, help, help. And, oh, by the way, I should tell you, I was I ended up being, I'll tell you the name of the hospital. It was St. Louis Children's Hospital, which is a very big hospital in St. Louis. It's not your little local thing, you know, it's a big mm -hmm. deal. And it wasn't just the emergency room physician who told me, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree. And that's actually the word that this particular neurologist, they had nine different neurologists look at her case. And they all said the same thing. And then they came to me, it was like a meeting of neurologists. I've never, you know, they all came to her room at St. Louis Children's and said, we want you to know we have looked at this in detail. This is not a chemical poisoning. She would have to drink the bug spray for this to happen. And you are barking up the wrong tree, Mrs. Hurd. You need to drop this. I mean, they made me feel like I was the stupidest thing that ever walked the earth. And so that's when I left, went back home, and she started. And it's like, no, I, I don't care what they said. I'm, I got to get to the bottom of this. So I started calling all the poison controls all over. I finally got a hold of a poison control in Dallas. You know, I'm living in the St. Louis area. And they said, you know what, we don't know what to tell you, but you should talk to Dr. Sheldon Wagner. Dr. Sheldon Wagner is a, a child toxicologist who was practicing at the, um, in Corvallis 
at the university there and said, call him. And so I did. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, all this time, you know, you have to tell your story over and over and over again to the next, you know, person. Mm -hmm. I'll Mm -hmm. connect you to this person who connected that. And so I called and guess who I got to talk to directly? Dr. Sheldon Wagner. It's just like, wow. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. And so I told him the whole story and I said, they told me it's impossible. They said impossible is almost assuredly that she was poisoned. He said, this is what I want you to do. He said, chloropyrifos, which would be the active ingredient in the Durzban 2E, that was the organophosphate that was causing the nerve agent um, poisoning. He said, it breaks down very quickly. So what I need you to do is I need you to have someone go back. Don't you go back to the house, but send your husband or somebody and have them cut out. 12 inch by 12 inch segments of carpet. I want one from the living room. I want one from in the room where Ruth sleeps. And then I need a sample of your breast milk because I was nursing the baby. I was nursing Mm. her at the time. And I need that. And I want you to ship it to me next day air on dry ice because it's breaking down rapidly. And I need to check what are the levels of chloropyrifos in these things. And I have all the labs and all the equipment to do that here at the university. Wow. We shipped all that stuff to him. He called. I mean, he got it. He did the testing right away because it was, you know, like less than 36 hours later, he's on the phone to me saying, what is remaining in the carpet is over 100 times the strength that's considered safe and allowable, what remains. And this had happened, you know, we're giving him samples that are over two weeks old. Wow. And wow. Your little girl is definitely poisoned. Why haven't your physicians done a cholinesterate level? And I said, they refused. He said, give me the name of your physician instantly. I did. In less than 30 minutes, I got a call from our physician from St. Louis Children. Would you please bring in Ruth? We want to run a liver exam called cholinesterate level. It's just a simple blood test, which I knew. Yeah, it's just like, mm-hmm. yes, we'll be over. We did the cholinesterate level. Guess what? It was positive. She had been poisoned. And so wow. then, then begins, okay, what do you do about it? You know, what do, what do we do about it? Because she was very ill. She was so sick. She wouldn't eat any food at all. You know, she, at 18 months, she'd already been on table food. She'd given that up. All I could do was to get her nurse some. She was losing weight. She was yellow. She was weak. She was broken out in hives constantly from I mean, and we weren't living in that house. We were living in a hotel, you know. We had no place to live because we weren't going to return to the house. And, and she was warts everywhere, warts all through on her face. It just appeared overnight all over her hands, everything. It's just like every virus that anybody was ever exposed to was just taking over. And we took her to specialists in St. Louis. We took her to specialists in Chicago and into to Dallas. And they all had the same prognosis. She will be dead in less than six weeks. Her liver is completely failing. Wow. And she is not going to survive. And I said, I, I, I can't take that as an answer. They said, there is nothing we can do. Yes, she's been poisoned, but we can't get rid of this poison. I mean, it is, it's shutting her liver down. And, and I remember the day, it was in the specialist office in St. Louis. And he said, Mrs. Hurd, uh, our organization would like to ask you if we have your permission we'd like to do a liver biopsy on Ruth's liver because we've never been able to chronicle someone dying of chloropyrophosphate for poisoning and it is a little bit of painful procedure and we like to do multiple liver biopsies as she progresses on to death 
Wow. I can't, I can't imagine as a parent. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah. Um, that's it. I'm done. I walked out of that physician's office, said, I will not be returning. No, you do not have permission. Goodbye. You have not helped me. So I have to find help myself because there's nobody, nobody helping me. And all this time, we're living in a hotel. Everything was extremely difficult. In the meantime, we had contacted um, the Environmental Protection Agency for the state. They had come over. They had come over with air sniffers and everything. To, whether it was clear, it was not clear. Every bit of carpet had to be torn out. Everything, all the curtains, everything that could absorb the poison was taken by special waste hauler to Peoria, Illinois, where they have a special chemical waste facility. The house was stripped. Everything, it was just extremely stressful bread it was terrible i'm sorry it's been a long time it's been over 30 years but it was such a horrible horrible time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i was carrying a baby at the time when all this happened i lost that baby so it's just a terrible time so now now my little girl ruth is supposed to die in less than six weeks and the clock is ticking and every day. She's worse and worse. She's so lethargic and just limp rag. So I left her in the care of my husband because I can't take her to the library with me. There's a medical university in St. Louis, um, um, University of, uh, it's the Washington University Medical University in St. Louis. And I went to the medical library there and this was back in the days of microfiche. You know, now we have everything digitized. But it was a microfiche, use the old card catalogs and stuff like that. And you know, I'm a college grad, but I've never studied anything like this before. You know, I, I know I have my nuclear biological chemical warfare training, but I just presented myself to a librarian and said, I need help. I need to find things specifically on the liver, detoxifying the liver, on chlorpyrophosphate poisoning, on organophosphate poisoning, you know. And she said, Okay, this is the way you look things up and you know. So I began to study, and I mean, I spent all day, days in the library looking up everything that every article that's ever been published on everything that would have anything to do with the situation. And after uh, several days, I came up with a, a solution that I thought would work. I just me, little low Karen, you know, no education, basically, you know, just a little bit of army training and said, this is what I think we need to do to clear her liver of the chlorpyrifos. And so maybe that's where you got the beans from because it's the beans is the key ingredient to do that. Huh, interesting. So anyway, so it's the, I started to give her my, what we, what I needed to do. She's not eating food, have to puree everything, shoot it down the back of her throat with an oral syringe and she'd be crying the whole time. <laughs> it was amazing. Wow. It was amazing in six days. It's like, she's not so yellow. Everything starts to get better. She started to get better and better. And, and then two weeks go by and then, and then three weeks go by. And she's like, she's, she's getting back to where she should be. And, and then I take her back into physicians and they're like, her liver enzymes are coming back into the normal. Your liver enzymes are elevated when your liver is failing. Yep. And so her liver enzymes are coming back in the normal range. What are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm doing a nutritional solution. I'm giving her ground up food, you know, and an oral syringe all watered down so it'll go down her little throat. And so 
the hospital administrator, the chief administrator of St. Louis Children's contacted me and said, we are so sorry. We did not listen to you. We should have run a cholinesterate level in the first place. We should have listened to you. We should not, you know, blah, blah, blah. I hope you're not going to press charges against the hospital and, you know, that whole mm. thing going on. And we're still living in a hotel. Everything is still chaotic. And so, but Ruth is getting better. She's getting better and better. And then out of the blue, and, and she did get better, 100% better. And we did get the house cleaned up. I was not participated that we had, we had people that we had come in and clean the whole place up. And, you know, just, you had to use super tropical bleach to be able to break down the chlorophyll plus, which is deadly in itself, but they all wore masks. It just was a, what a time of it. Anyway, so we're finally make it back in the house and I don't think we were in the house a week. And then I get this phone call from a person said, you know, I understand that you helped your daughter to get better. And I have, my husband is really sick and he has this, this, and this, and what should I do? And I said, ma'am, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know why you're calling me because nobody else can help me. I've mm. tried everything and I've gone to every physician and every, every whatever, and, and nobody can help me. And I said, I don't know anything about your husband's condition or anything. And how did you hear about it? Well, there's the article in the paper. I said, what article in the paper? And she said, was in the St. Louis Globe Democrat, which is one of the big papers in St. Louis. I said, what? And so then I went and found the archives of the paper and there's this, this tiny little, you know, it's like two paragraphs long, <laughs> little blurb in one of the editions of the St. Louis Globe Democrat that says, little girl expected to die lives. It's a girl who lived. And, and it was just and I don't even know where they got it. I don't know if some physician or a nurse or some worker at St. Louis Children's. I don't know. what. I was just there. And then there was no phone number, but unfortunately, my name was there. Or fortunately, is fortunately, because this is what propelled me into where I am now. Mm-hmm. And so this wasn't the first lady. There's another one and another one. And, and then my son and my daughter and my grandfather and all their problems. And I don't know what to do. And I am not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm not anything. I have no training and they said we don't care you saved your little girl maybe you can tell us something to help us and I said well I could go down to the library and look at the condition at wash you and and see you know if I can help you and then I would say well if it were me but you cannot hold me to this I'm not a practitioner I would feed them this this and this based on what I learned in the library and so and they did and they got better. And then it just, it just snowballed from there. Pretty soon, St. Louis, the One Bell Tower, which is um, uh, the Southwestern Bell Telephone at that time, had their headquarters in St. Louis, and they were headquartered in One Bell Tower. If you live in St. Louis, you understand it's the highest skyscraper. It's the most famous skyscraper in St. Louis. And they own that building. And since then, they've moved to Texas. But at that time, they were there. And then the Southwestern Bell Telephone called and said, we do these brown bag seminars um, once a month for our employees. You know, we bring in, you know, people who talk about how to improve your finances or whatever, you know, whatever their subject matter is. And we have had hundreds of requests because they had thousands and thousands of employees. Hmm. We have had hundreds of requests that you would come in and speak about health. I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? Well, anything you think you should talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, uh, do you realize I don't have a degree? Do you realize? We know that, you know, but we've we got such a huge outcry for you. We want you to come. The first lecture I gave was in this lecture hall that whole 3,000 people was packed out. Wow. Just, and, and, and how long ago was this? What, just, just so we got a time frame on it. 
this is 1980. Well, it was 89 when she was poisoned. This is 1990. So this is fairly well before. I mean, obviously things have become wildly popular these days, you know, nutrition, natural medicine, et cetera. So yeah, this is long before. um, That was long before. Yeah. yeah, We're talking 1990. We're back in the dinosaur age. It's not quite dinosaur. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Well, (laughs) pre-internet, you know, so um, yeah, we definitely didn't have access to the information that we have uh, these days. So, so that's, I mean, that's a very fascinating, I mean, tragic backstory. And I'm I'm obviously glad that things worked out uh, for you. That's how I got into it. And then when I, then the other people asked me to do brown bag, you know, there was some Drury Inns and then the St. Louis Catholic Parish. And then finally, the University of Missouri asked me to teach classes in nutrition. I said, I don't have a degree. And they said, we know you need to get one so that we can mm, hire you. Mm, mm, that's yeah. when I got, that's when I got my degree in nutrition. And since then, I've gotten a master's degree in biochemistry. And so it's, I've learned gods and gods. So now I feel, yeah. you know, qualified because now I understand molecular biology and study, you know, all that stuff. So right. anyway. Yeah, that's yeah. how I got into it all. And so then my practice just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew until now it's it's grown a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, as we were, we were talking about off air, I mean, you are just swamped, which is why you've uh, created e-courses so you can just yeah. keep helping more people. But just uh, I want to sort of tap into a little bit of your sort of core philosophy, um, which, you know, many of, of our listeners here will be familiar with this philosophy. It's fairly um well-established and very old. However, um, we seem to have deviated quite a bit, uh, both in allopathic and in natural circles. But really your philosophy, um, the philosophy that food is medicine, right? Um, it is or, exactly it. Yep. Yeah. And it's not, it's not original. I mean, that was Hippocrates that said, let food be thy medicine and thy mm-hmm. medicine is the food. And mm-hmm. so that is my modus operandi. That is how I operate. Let's, let, let's do this with food, with food, with food. Not with, so, you know, so all so all of these things that you were doing with people again, I'm just sort of winding the clock back, you know, thirty uh, years. You were just working with food, like there was no supplementation or medication involved. It was right. It's just using. Well, wow. wow. yes, this is what you need to eat. You need well, yes, you would need the carotenoids because carotenoids are very important in the DNA repair system. Mm-hmm. And so, if we need those carotenoids, where do you get them? from your orange vegetables. If you're yeah. orange, it's telling you it's a carotenoid, you know? And so mm-hmm. we say, we're going to eat our carrots or we're going to eat our, you know, butternut squash or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously nutritionist to nutritionist, um, you know, it's fairly self-evident uh, if you look at it like that. And, you know, I think about people that I've learned from, uh, for example, Bernard Jensen, you know, I mean, Jensen, he would use supplements, but food was was the way to go. You know, I mean, he had a farm, he had a sanitarium, like people would come and live there and pick their own vegetables and juice them and all sorts of other stuff. And that's um, that's how he was able to, to essentially cure or heal, um, I think it was upwards of 350,000 patients. Wow. Um, you know, f- food alone. Um, so, so I totally hear what you're saying. But, you know, a couple of things that we were talking about um, off air, you, you know, the, the idea that food is medicine um, or let food be thy medicine, do you feel that people are actually doing that in this day and age, you know? And, and the reason why I say that is, you know, there's so many fad diets going on and, you know, I mean, keto is, is people are going gaga for keto right now. And then you know, everyone's looking at veganism and everyone sort of seems to me like they're more subscribing to some sort of ideology or philosophy versus really, really using food as medicine. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Um. Yes, unfortunately, that is true. I mean, we have, 
it's like, Brett, we want to use a pill instead because it takes an effort to, to eat well because we have to give up or whatever our, our favorite drink is or beverages. Mm -hmm. We're loads to do that. It's I've noticed that we have become a generation or a culture of I call them foodies. Foodies mm-hmm. are people that you know you're just interested in in food, food, food. You know, it's just like what's it taste like? What about the ambiance? And what what do we need with this <laughs> course or that course? You know, you need a certain wine with this particular course and that. And it's just it is all about food. And really, what life should be about, in Karen Hurd's opinion, what life should be about is what are we doing? How are we impacting? What are the others around? What are our relationships? It's about people and relationships and, and what we feel like we're called to do. Not, what am I going to eat today? It's, mm-hmm. Eating should be a tool to give us the health that we need to accomplish all of our goals in our life. And, and whether or not a person acknowledges it or not, I think a lot of people's goal is just to eat today. You know, not because they're starving. It's just, what, mm-hmm. what do I get to eat? What restaurant are we going to have you know this particular dessert at or this particular you know steak at or whatever so yeah yeah we we have really run after supplements and then what you do is that you use you know all these things you swallow to try to correct the problems that you created by choosing the wrong foods in the first place so what if you chose the right foods and you would never have the problems and could you Mm -hmm. choose the right foods and could you get over your problems the vast majority of them you can yeah. Well, uh, okay. So let me let me ask you another question then, because I think this really gets down to the crux of it all. Um, you know, very simple question: What should people eat, right? And and I think we are losing sight of that. Um, and the reason why I say that is again coming back to these ideological or philosophical ways of eating, right? Where you know, let's just say Joe Blow has a really really good blog and his arguments for veganism and the way that he looks and the marketing that he has behind him you know i subscribe to that like that looks really good to me i'm attracted to that so i'm going to go down that path but that might not necessarily be the the right way for you to eat right and we can apply the same logic to the paleo people the keto people the whoever you know whatever other um diet is is out there so you know it's a pretty big question if you think about it what should we eat um so i don't i know that there's not one answer i also know that there's not one straight line between that but perhaps um you know from your vantage point you know 30 years in having helped people with all kinds of different um, ailments and issues um what are your thoughts on that it's a good question um i want to say this whenever a person is looking at their current philosophy that they're using whether they're you know doing paleo or whatever they're doing you should always ask yourself this question is it working mm-hmm. am i getting over my problems you know i reason i was doing this diet is for these reasons am i better is it working because if it's not working that's when we have to look hard and even if we want to do that philosophy that we're committed to that because it just you know resonated with us it's just is it working is it working yeah. for you? Yeah. If it's not working for you, then you got to change. Wasn't it Benjamin Franklin that said, if you continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, that is the definition of insanity? Yeah, I, I think it might have been Einstein. I, I forget. Einstein? But, but yeah, I, one, one of them, yeah. But, um, one of those greats. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, it, it's, 
We have got to, if it's not working, and I, I'm just astounded at the number of people that hold on to, you know, fanatically hold on to a way of thinking when it's not working for them. Yeah. And so that's another thing that I, you know, spend so much time on my nutrition counseling, you know, it's just like trying to explain why it wouldn't work, you know, what is happening at the cellular level, why this wouldn't work and why we'd have to do something instead. But I run into people that are just, they're just, they're not willing to change even after you go through an explanation like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you know, everybody gets to do whatever you want to want to do. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So do, do you have some sort of like core food plan that you subscribe to or, or what are your thoughts on that? You know, again, coming back to that question, what, what should people eat? Yeah. It's, you know, health situation. So like if you were dealing with gastrointestinal problems right now and you have horrible diarrhea, blood in your stool, you certainly aren't going to eat like a person who is basically well. Mm-hmm. So it, it changes. But the basic premise is we don't eat sugars, which every almost everybody knows that nowadays you yeah. don't yeah. eat sweets. They're bad for you, you know? So one thing and, we can all agree on, I find, is, you know, whether you're an MD, an oncologist, a nutritionist, uh, whoever, a yoga instructor, or just a regular person, I think everyone agrees that we, we know that sugar is not good for us. <laughs> yep. We know sugar is not good for us. And, you know, and we, most people know that bad fats are bad for you. I mean, that there are certain bad fats that are saturated fats. But, you know, I've run into a lot of people who don't get that at all. So but bad fats. And then, you know, we get rid of things that are like caffeine. A lot of people, they know that it's not right, but then there's been a lot of stuff recently that says, well, you know, caffeine, you know, has got these wonderful antioxidants that are going to help you prevent cancer. Yeah. But the same antioxidants are found in any plant food. I mean, you can get Mm -hmm. that from poison ivy. You can get that from eating your vegetables. Why do you have to do caffeine? Well, because caffeine has or caffeinated things like chocolate, you know, or caffeine is such as in coffee. And they say, well, you know, that's my excuses. I'm trying to get all those good antioxidants. Well, it's just like you could get that from other foods that don't have the caffeine content because caffeine causes a lot of problems too. So Um, here's just to interject on that point, because I found this quite interesting a few years back now. um, I read an article that coffee was the number one source of antioxidants for Americans, mm -hmm. if you can believe that. I can believe that because... Actually, now this article was several years ago. The number one beverage in the United States was Mountain Dew. Oh, and wow. So, okay. <laughs> and, and then so, you know, it, that more people consume Mountain Dew and then they went through the list of Mountain Dew and then there was Pepsi and Coca-Cola and then coffee was up there. And guess what was the very last on the list? Water. Water. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say. <laughs> and so, yes. So the main source of a person's antioxidants, yes, would be coming from coffee because coffee is coming from a bean, which is a plant because most people are eating horribly. They're living on coffee and whatever else they probably consume, but it's not a good diet. So yeah, yeah it's, so we, we almost fall back into that, you know, it's a good excuse. It's like, no, but you've got caffeine and that's going to be a direct stimulus to your endocrine system. And you're going to have all kinds of problems with lowering your immune system function by 50%. It's just like, this is, there's so many other sources you can get the very same antioxidants from that are healthy. Right. Well, I, I also look at it another way and sort of say, well, well, look, like if that's your number one source of antioxidants, that means you're not getting antioxidants anywhere else in your diet. 
Yep. Do you know what I, do you yep, know what I mean? Exactly. So like if you flip that exactly. around, like if I was eating, I don't know, berries and and salads and vegetables and fruits and whatnot, um, you know, and then I looked at my antioxidant score, you probably find that coffee would be lower down on the rung. But because people aren't eating those things and we're eating lots of processed foods and so on, um, you know, all of a sudden coffee becomes the main source of antioxidants. But the, what's interesting from a from a sort of psychological perspective is that people will now latch onto that and go, oh well, see. That, that means it's really, really good. And it's like, I personally don't have any problems with high quality coffee personally. Um, but, but, but nonetheless, you know, people now use that as this, you know, justification, if you will, that, um, that, that it's, you know, it's the be all and end all. And it's like, well, you know, look at what else you're doing as well, just in terms of your general yeah. diet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So coming back to the food, um, any anything else? I mean, you know, you've you've mentioned uh, a few things there. Um, any yeah, sort of core one foods? Of things that we, you know, that we shouldn't be doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another one that is big is perfumes and fragrances. Oh, huge! Yeah, that, that is, and you know, there's a big aromatherapy movement right now. That aromatherapy is the use of essential oils for medicinal reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, there is no doubt about the efficacy. Of scents and perfumes, they're pheromones, and the purpose mm-hmm. of a pheromone is to create illicit hormonal response. Because when you inhale it, it stimulates the olfactory sensory neurons. It sends an action potential to your brain, and your brain, the lower part of your brain, and then that's controlling your release of hormones. And so then you'll have this increased hormonal release. That's why people have been using pheromones forever. I mean, since mm-hmm. the beginning of time, pheromones have been in use of perfume for that or smell for this. So there's that. There's not a question as far as efficacy, yeah. just if, as far as safety is concerned, because they're such small molecules themselves, perfumes and fragrances are very small molecules, and then they're eliciting a hormonal response, which is also a small molecule. We're talking tiny, 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 so tiny that they diffuse through the plasma membrane, the cell wall. Um, normally we have to have some way to get through the plasma membrane. You know, you have to have like a G coupled receptor site. You have to have like a calcium channel. You have to have a pore, you know, an aquapore. You have to have a way to enter the cell so that, you know, that plasma membrane, the cell wall is this barrier to protect the innards of the cell because you don't want to get into the cell and mess it up because when you get in there, then you can really make some terrible health problems. And so these perfumes and fragrances, the essential oils included, they are so small that they don't need a doorway because mm-hmm. normally the doorways are blocking things that you can't, so that you can't get into the cell. So right, it's like s- selective uptake, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so these things are so small. We're talking about 51 K Daltons or less. They're tiny little buggers. Mm. And so they just diffuse through the plasma membrane. Diffuse means they walk through the wall. Right. It's just like like a ghost walking through the wall, you know? And they enter they enter the cytosol. The cytosol, I know you know because you're but I'll just say yeah. it for the yeah, yeah, yeah. The cytosol a cell has composed of all kinds of organelles, little parts and pieces of the cell, like the mitochondria, and there's the reculum, and then there's the Golgi apparatus and all these parts. And then the parts are surrounded and in this bigger space, and the space is full of the cytosol. And then there is a very important part inside each cell called the nuclear envelope. And these little molecules that are diffusing through from the perfumes and fragrances and then the hormones that they create 
as they diffuse through the plasma membrane and enter the cytosol, they're going to bind once they meet into the cytosol. They bind immediately. They're attracted to what's called the transcription factor. And then the two of them then make a new molecule, and they're still really tiny, and then they are able to diffuse the nuclear envelope, and this is where it gets really serious. Because the nuclear envelope is like the highly protected area to keep your DNA safe. Mm-hmm. Inside the nuclear envelope is a full copy of your genome. Your DNA is right there. And so if you go through the nuclear envelope, and there are nuclear pores, because that is also a gated, guarded entrance, yeah. because not everything can just get into the nucleus of the cell. This is You've got to have to have a reason to be there. But when you attach to a transcription factor, these nuclear receptors, what I'm describing to you is called, they're called nuclear receptors. And so... They will then diffuse without going through a nuclear pore. They will go through that nuclear envelope and they enter into where the DNA is residing. And because of the transcription factor, they will attach. They are physically attaching to your DNA. What does that do? When they attach, they begin to swap out nucleotides. Mm-hmm. Our DNA is a long string of nucleotides that come in three little nucleotides and a codon, and the codons form genes. And, and that's how we have our, our DNA. It's very long and very beautiful. And so if you swap out a nucleotide, then you have just mutated the DNA. Mm-hmm. Now, if that happens on a place that is not of a critical function, you may never see any change in your health at all. But what if that happened on the P53 gene? The P53 gene is the protector of the cell. It is our main defense against cancer. And how, 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 how is this determined where a nuclear receptor lands on your DNA? It's uh, random. It's totally random, yeah. Totally yeah. random. Yeah. It's chance. And so, but like in our cancers, Nowadays, which is an aside, is the number one cause of death in every in the entire world. There is no greater cause of death than cancer. We know that cancer is a mutation of the DNA. That's what it is. We know that. Yeah. So if the P53 gene is the one that randomly gets damaged, then your protector of the cell, the P53 gene, what it does is it prevents the cell from going through a mitosis. Every cell has a certain length of time that it will live, and then the DNA will be transcribed, copied, and translated into a new cell. And that happens for each cell. It's different, you know, like gastrointestinal cells, that happens every three days. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Or endocrine cells every three months, for bone cells every two years. It's a different DNA for different cells. Yeah. And so that mitosis is stopped. In that mitotic process, there's a very specific process that the cell has to go through. The P53 gene, if you have a mutated DNA, will say, ah, stop, we're not going to copy a mutated DNA. (laughs) And so it protects your cell. That cell does not replicate. And so then you won't create cancer. And over 50% of all cancers that are now diagnosed, the P53 gene has been damaged. If you damage and swap out the nucleotides on the P53 gene, that means you can't not make that that P53 enzyme. It's not made because the DNA didn't tell you how to make it because the DNA is all scrambled. So, so d- does, does this mean that cells will, just so that I'm, I'm crystal clear, so, so this means that cells will not continue to divide or will they continue to divide uncontrollably if you have a cancerous cell? The latter. They will the continue latter. Okay. to divide uncontrollably and then you are diagnosed with hyper 
all this growth and then it right. goes so so do you do you feel i mean is there any good evidence to suggest that um essential oils are in fact mutating that gene um, yes because there they're is. small mo- yes yes because okay. they're small molecules interesting and the small molecules in nuclear receptor anything that is so tiny and then because we know that they're increasing your hormonal production all hormones are nuclear receptors like vitamin d Hormonal yeah. People yeah. think vitamin D is a vitamin. It's not a vitamin. It's a hormone. It's a hormone. Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. And and that influences. I mean, over two thousand genes on its own. Uh, you know, yes. let alone anything yes. else. Yes, and it actually, yeah. it's well documented in the scientific literature to cause cancer because it's a nuclear receptor. Interesting. So, um, uh, on that note, uh, are there any specific essential oils that you feel are more problematic, or is that they're just all, a sort of? No, no, no. I don't even single one out because they're all tiny, and so. Yeah. And then I hear people, oh, I hear so many things, that, but they're natural. So it's okay. What's natural about concentrating something? These yeah. essential oils, they're not in their original concentration. If they were in their original concentration, you get from a plant, you wouldn't smell them. You know? They yeah, wouldn't yeah. You, you'd have to like crush the plant up or something like that or, oh, or yes, water and pestle, you know? Highly, highly concentrated. Yeah. And we say it's natural. It is not natural. It does not occur in nature that way. Hmm. So that's very interesting. And the reason why I'll sort of play devil's advocate here and, and um, push back a little bit is uh, a lot of people, and, and I'm not even talking people, I'm talking, you know, practitioners like PhD, yeah. doctorate practitioners, um, have said that one of the benefits of essential oils is that they have the ability to change cellular DNA memory. Now, that is, uh, I think you could take that in a few different ways, you know, DNA cellular memory. I don't know really what that means specifically, um, but, you know, that's touted as one of the actual benefits. And what I'm hearing from you is that, well, changing memory, quote unquote, could simply mean that we're actually swapping out nucleotides and therefore, um, you know, mutating our DNA. Uh, I was going to say, it's an interesting term. I'm not quite sure what they mean by that. that that's what I mean. Like, I'm not, again, it's quite vague. It, it, when, it, if, you, if you want to get very scientific, it's a very vague term. Um, yeah, and when you get very scientific, we know that the DNA will be transcribed at the time of a mitotic event. It just well, will happen. Well, and when you just transcribe the DNA, it is copied ver by codon, nucleotide by nucleotide, exactly the way that cell is currently in existence mm. so whether you call that a memory or not i mean that's that's part of dna i don't know that i it's never termed that in scientific like, things it's just right. memory rna <laughs> yeah it is maybe it's messenger rna but it's called yeah messenger rna but it, that's what mrna are but anyways yeah. you just what we want to do is just look at this is this we do know i mean geneticists know this is the process that happens and it's not I don't want to call it memory. It's just the way the human being is made. And then, you know, we have the telomere on the end of the chromosome that, t- that dictates how many mitotic events we can go through before that cell can no longer go through another mitosis. And so, it's, it, and so I mean, it's very specific. And so to say that you're, you know, you're helping the memory, like memory is already there. I mean, there's no helping it. It's just there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think the reasoning behind what I said is, is um, when, you know, when when memory quote unquote goes awry you know when it goes out of balance when something's out of whack it can bring it back into balance but again you know i don't want to bog us down in, in our conversation with this because it does when, when you when you put the hard science hat on i mean it, it's a very wishy-washy term so yeah. I mean, you can just kind of leave it at that but i wanted to just in the interest of time i mean there's two things that i definitely want to touch on um before we wrap up and the first one is you know since we're talking about essential oils and supplements and whatnot 
is let's talk a little bit about supplements um, because you also have some you know some interesting uh, notions about nutraceuticals you know and this whole um, you know the supplement industry that is literally ballooning right before our eyes. It um, is. It is indeed. Yeah. So how how do you, how do you feel about supplements in I guess in a let's just split it into two conversations. You know, one in a day to day use and the other one in more of a clinical therapeutic setting. Not needed. And for both yeah. of the answers to those questions, not needed. Interesting. Because if, because when you isolate one particular nutrient, whatever you want to, you know, vitamin C, you know, the B6, I don't care, whatever, pick one. In nature, it's occurring with thousands, up to 10,000 or more intrinsic factors that are cofactors and co-nutrients. See, things in when it get into chemical reactions, they're not just acting. You can't just dump vitamin C, ascorbic acid, into the bloodstream, and then it can't elicit a cellular response. Normally, it causes an adrenaline rush, just like caffeine does. But you, you have to have other things there. You know, after vitamin C was discovered, it was years later, they said, oh, you know, there's something that makes vitamin C more bioavailable. It's called bioflavonoids. I mean, and now that's a big, you know, buzz. And, you know, if you're going to have vitamin C, you got to have the bioflavonoids. That's only a few of all of these intrinsic cofactors, coenzymes. That it's, 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 a, it's a fraction. It's a fraction. I mean, this is something that I do in my training. I, I don't want to mention any company names, but I do training for um, one particular supplement company. And what's interesting is they are actually a whole foods supplement, right? So they take whole food, peel and all, seeds, the whole thing, and essentially um, run them. They cold mill them, right? So it's cold milled into a liquid pulp. And then that's then dried out, but they they add um, certain vitamins and minerals to the whole food. And what's interesting with that is, you know, you are really talking about food, you know, um, uh, food on steroids, you know, in, in a nutshell. But what's but what's interesting is when you actually look at, you know, what is in an orange or what's in an apple or what's in, you know, these whole foods. Um, most people don't realize that there are hundreds of compounds. Yes. Most of most of them, even you and I, have never even heard of them before. Most of them are unidentified. We don't know what they do. We're not even sure of the molecular structure. We know that something is helping this to work better, but what that is, we're in the toddler stage of science as far as that's concerned. There's so much to be done. It's really the synergy of all of those things working together. And you know, one of the yes. things that I've always said is, as soon as you isolate something, you have to uh, crank up the dose. You know that that's mm -hmm. we we know that. I mean, that's what orthomolecular dosaging is all about, is you have to, you know, if you take vitamin C in a whole food, well, they were curing um, or preventing scurvy back in the day by consuming one lime. Yes. You know, one lime per day. And one that lime, lime per day, yes. Yeah, th that, that lime might have been five or six, six weeks old by the time it got to this side of the ocean, you know. Yes. And there's probably, I mean, the highest quality limes maybe going to have about 50 milligrams of vitamin C, maybe probably less than that. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is, you know, you now look at ascorbic acid and we've got to take thousands of milligrams. Yeah. You know, so you think of okay. it like that and it's like the reason why is we've lost the synergistic effect of food because we've isolated. Them. Exactly. So that brings us back to why don't we just eat the lime or eat the lemon? Why don't we just eat the food? Yeah. So here's another thing I want to throw at you is what are your thoughts then, you know, for people saying, well, the, the nutrient value in food has declined because of uh, artificial fertilization, loss of topsoil, loss of microbial life in the soil, blah, blah, blah. Like our food, you know, there's been journal publications to show 
that our food um, nutrient density is lower than it was for the past 50 years. So do you feel then in light of that, do we, you know, how do we get around that? Like, do we, are supplements good or supplements bad? Do we need them? No, still don't need them. Okay. For us to be able, if we have, let's talk about a green bean, for example, you know, a, a green bean that grows. If the food doesn't have the nutrients in the soil, then that green bean plant, it can grow so far. And then if it sets a bud, you may not even get the bean to develop from that blossom because it doesn't have the nutrients. If you develop a full and healthy green bean, it obviously had the nutrients to get to that point. Hmm. So then you have it. And you know, the thing about saying, well, that it, you know, and I would really love to see the actual research, you know, on that, you know, our foods don't have as much as they did, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Yeah, but the, the, this is based on, just so you know, this is based on the USDA food database. Okay. So, so, so they've actually looked at um, things like apples and potatoes and whatnot. I mean, potatoes, if you wind the clock back um, 70 years ago, were a very rich source of vitamin A. Um, particularly, obviously, the beta carotenes and the the, the carotenoids, but um, nowadays it's pretty well absent of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have that anymore. Um, yeah, so that's where it's coming from. I mean, I think the other one uh, is mm -hmm. is the British British Journal of Medicine. I, th I think that's where the other. There's another source in there. Um, there's another. There's a book. Uh, I forget the author's name, but it's called The End of Food. And um, he sort of references a lot of this stuff uh, in his book. So, you know, again, I only look at that in terms uh, just to push back a little bit and play devil's advocate yeah, because I, I push think back. I'm, I'm pushing back too. Yeah, no, no. And it's good to have these discussions. You know? Yeah. It's something you just said, you know, that it used to be, you know, one lime a day. You know, these people had scurvy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a vitamin C deficiency big time. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they ate one lime a day, you know, mm -hmm. that was enough to sure the situation when you know you mentioned it's only what 50 milligrams of vitamin yeah, c yeah. tiny 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 amount you know we're looking at is the difference between our food from today to and i like i said i would personally like to run those studies myself i get mm -hmm. to usda and you know you're putting i like to personally i want to get on the microscope i want to do that i'm a big researcher myself yeah, yeah. and look at that but let us you know what if it's is it that big of a difference is it that big of a difference because what if we only need that small amount anyway? Because if you have all the intrinsic factors that are found in the food, which, as you know, you know, you're talking about, there is no pill that is really just has all those intrinsic factors or something. Like you said, you know, the steroid, mm -hmm. the vitamin mm -hmm. on steroids or whatever you were calling yeah. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, it's just like, what? why don't we just eat the lime? Yeah. Why don't, why don't we, you know, is it, and, and I think that we would have at least the 50 milligrams of the vitamin C. We would have the 50 milligrams. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I would agree. I would agree. To, to, and so that is sufficient. It's more than sufficient to keep us from having scurvy and to have the health that we need. Mm -hmm. So, well, so, so here's another question for you. I mean, I'll throw your question back at you. Why, why is it that people don't just eat the food? Like what's, what's stopping us, you know? You know, that is such a good question. It is such a good question. And I just, I, I really think it comes down to all these years that I've been practicing is that people don't want to eat the right food. There are so many, especially in the United States, I don't know about other countries, but in the United States, we have so many choices available. And just turn on the TV and look at all the food commercials of, you know, yeah. of this and that. And, you, and more than half of them are advertising bad junk that we all know is bad junk. You know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. 
And so I think that people have become enamored of food and it has become, it's become a lifestyle and that this is what they want is food is paramount and the tastes and the, yeah, yeah. it's back to that old foodie thing that I was talking about. Yeah. No, and I so think you're right. Yeah. If we can take, I mean, I have how many clients that I have treated for diabetes that are on insulin by injection and they say, you know what, I can eat as my I was told by my healthcare practitioner that I can have as much sweets as I want and eat whatever I want. I just have to up my insulin. Oh, I'm, it's the it's the worst advice you could ever I know. give someone. Well, I'm yeah. sure you've heard it too. <laughs> oh yeah, oh too. yeah. It's yeah. Just, that's horrible because we know that insulin causes osteoporosis. We know that it's got all kinds of side effects. And so then they say, I don't want to eat this way because I really like to eat my cake and I love pies, and I love cookies, or whatever they love, and I'm going to drink this, or, you know, their sweetened beverages, or whatever, and I just up my insulin accordingly, because I'm, and so some of it, too, is that, you know, we now have done studies that show that sugar is very addictive, actually more addictive than cocaine and heroin, and so, you know, we've got a bunch of sugar addicts out there, and they don't even realize that they're addicted to it, and so the I mean, if you say to the average person you have to give up their sugar, they will really start to quake in their boots because the thought of giving up sugar is very overwhelming to them because they're so dependent upon it. And it's their drug. And yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, you know, it was funny. Um, recently, we had family members over and whatnot, and uh, there was like a big football game on, right? And I'm, I'm not huge into football at all. I kind of get the gist of it. Um, so, but watching it, you know, watching with the family and a commercial comes on and the commercial is for wild blueberries, mm -hmm. right? And, and everyone kind of like, we kind of looked at it and we're like, are they really advertising blueberries on TV? It just seems really odd, right? Mm -hmm. Like when last have you ever seen a commercial for avocados or for carrots or for broccoli <laughs> no, on TV? Never, never, right? You never see it, right? right? You know, this is scattered amongst the two for one, you know, Happy Meals, uh, those commercials, and then the chocolate and whatever. And here's this people enjoying blueberries on the TV in the middle of a football game. And it kind of really caught me by surprise and made me think a little bit more. And I think it really ties into what we're talking about, uh, where, you know, uh, the, there's a lot of marketing um, that goes behind all of this. You know, the food industry, uh, the book Salt, Sugar, Fat. I mean, just go and read that. You know, that, that sums it all up. You know, things are, are engineered um, to appease our taste buds. You know, and sugar, salt, fat is what we love. So it, it, um, is, it is an economic issue. And, and I get yeah. that because, you know, if I was the CEO of a company that is selling a sugary product or a caffeinated product or whatever, you know, it's just like, I got a lot of employees to pay. We got a lot of bills yeah. and we need to make this company. We need to, we need to make money and people want this. Why isn't the tobacco industry shut down? Everybody knows yeah. tobacco is bad. <laughs> exactly. yeah. it's bad. It's bad. Nobody even questions it is so well proven, but there are people out there that's making the tobacco and, you know, and selling tobacco. And so it's because it's whatever the market will bear. It's whatever is in demand. And so it's just like, well, people want to have these things. And so then they market to that. And if I was the CEO, I'd be marketing hard and fast and market my product too because we got bills to make. We have to make this company successful. So I get that. And so, it, so it's one and down to an economic issue too. Yeah. I mean, well, then there is definitely a socioeconomic uh, side of things as well. And I mean, there's a lot of different layers, I think, um, to that. You know, one of, one of the biggest ones I feel is that a lot of people still believe that eating healthy food is boring and that it doesn't taste good. 
and yeah. that it's just bland, you know, because I think people think of, well, if I'm going to eat healthy, then that means I've got to deny myself all of the pleasures and I'm just going to be stuck eating steamed broccoli with salt and pepper for the yes. rest of my life. And yes. that's just, you know, that's just not the case anymore. Like we know how to make um, very, very tasty, nutritious, delicious food. I mean, it's, that's, that's the world I live in. And I'm pretty sure that's the world you live in yes. where yes. it doesn't have to be boring. You know, it can it be very exciting. Be in fact, no, it <laughs> um, is. It's just, it's, yes, I, you're right on. Yeah. It's just a shift. It's a shift in perception, I think is really what it's about. And, you know, and, and, um, I'll come back to this again. I feel that a lot of people embarking on a health journey, the psychology behind it is I'm so attached to what I'm doing right now that the thought of leaving that and doing something different is just too much, you you know, so I'm just not going to do it. And you were saying something to me off air, which kind of like, shocked me a little bit. We know that compliance is an issue in a clinical setting, right? It's very difficult to get people to follow through with protocols and programs and whatnot. And you were saying 15% compliance is is sort of what's going on out there, which is quite quite shocking, really. And it doesn't matter. I talk myself blue in the face to to help these people change their, that shift in thinking. It's it's a new paradigm for them. I mean, you know, they just, it's just, and so, but they just, it's, it's just a very hard thing to do. Yeah. So um, just to, to uh, the last thing I want to talk to you about is how come, you know, you've become, I guess, uh, somewhat famous, if you will, quote unquote, uh, for the, the, the bean diet. Someone's dubbed it the bean diet. I, and I'm trying to understand why they dubbed that the bean it's diet. So because, perhaps you can... because in most diets, you don't require that you would eat beans three times a day. Okay. Beans, are, you know, they're just something that maybe you have, you know, at one of your football parties, you know, they have brats and beans on the tailgate of the mm-hmm. truck you know, type of thing. But it's, I was dubbed the bean queen a long time ago. It's the, it's the soluble fiber, the beans that are what healed Ruth way back. Ruth is my 18 month old girl who's now yep. in her thirties, by the way. And okay. um, but it was the soluble fiber there and beans are the richest source of soluble fiber that we have. And so everybody should be eating soluble fiber every day. And a long time ago, we gave up doing that in the United States. It was around 1910 when we had the advent of the flour mill. And then that's when people gave up eating beans and they were eating them three times a day. In many countries today, people still eat beans three times a day. I have a client over in Cairo and um, they were going to a local hamburger joint. I'll just say the name of the hamburger joint. It was McDonald's. It's the same McDonald's we have there. They got them in Cairo too. Yeah, they're everywhere. And, uh, and I said, well, you got to make sure you eat your beans. You know, we got to get those in a certain amount of times a day. And they said, oh, yeah, I'm getting them from McDonald's. I said, they sell beans at McDonald's? Oh, yeah. I live in Egypt. Interesting. They, we, eat, we eat beans all the time, yes. <laughs> they sell them at McDonald's because we don't have French fries here. We eat beans. Hmm. So I thought, what? <laughs> so, so, so um, you know, the soluble fiber, obviously, we know that beans have proteins as well, you know, especially for people doing more of a vegetarian, vegan um, diet. But um, what what do you say about the controversial research? And I'll say it's controversial because we can't apply a blanket to every single person or every single condition. But some of the um, research that's been coming out on lectins um, and how beans, you know, people doing autoimmune paleo, for example, or going paleo, they're obviously cutting out beans, um, you know, grains. We also know that grains are a source of soluble fiber, but grains are aggravating certain people. Yeah, and anything, 
anything that grows from the ground has lectin in it too. Every all plants have lectins. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry that some diets have demonized the lectin important cellular communicators or ligands. Whenever you're going to trigger a receptor site on a plasma membrane of the cell, you have to have a, a ligand, something to do that, to make the cell do what you want it to do, or to have one cell communicate to another. There's intracellular communication, and you have to have ligands. One of the most important ligands to do that are lectins. Without lectins, we would all be dead. So, so when you say ligands, um, just so that we're clear, L-I-G-A-N-S, is that right? L-I-G-A-N-D. Okay. Okay. Ligands. There, it's a it's a chemical biochemical term that means a trigger to like a G coupled receptor on a cell membrane. So it's so our lectins are actually part of the cellular communication process. They're vital in your immune system working. If you didn't have lectins, you won't have an immune system because their immune system is this complex system that one like the macrophage is talking to. The T helper, the T helper talks to the T suppressor. The T suppressor is talking to the T killer. These are all white blood cells. And the cellular communication where you have a macrophage talking to a T helper cell, that is done by lectins. Interesting. If you don't have lectins, it's not going to happen. So whoever, you know, started, you know, like you said, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I love living in a free country. Like we have free freedom of speech here in the United States. Anybody can say anything. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody can say anything at all. And I, and it needs to stay that way. I, I don't ever want to change. But some of the stuff that comes out is just like, I'm sorry, that's just baloney. <laughs> the whole lectin thing is baloney. <laughs> well, what's interesting, you know, I mean, so I'll, again, I'll push back a little bit because I do think that for certain people, certain lectins might be problematic. So for those of you uh, listening out there, if you've never heard of lectins before and you don't know what we're talking about exactly, lectins are, um, you know, as Karen said, found in mostly in plant foods, right? I mean, we're not going to really find lectins in animal foods um, unless they are grain fed or they're fed on um, beans or, you know, soy or, or whatnot. But but simply put, um, the the problem, quote unquote, with lectins for certain individuals is that these lectins can bind to body tissues and cause localized inflammation. Okay. So this is what the paleo community are banging on about. Uh, this is what the carnivore people are banging on about, um, which is a whole nother story. I'm not going to get into it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that it might be problematic for some people. But what's interesting to me is if you actually go and look at the uh, a friend of mine, Jason Prahl, I had Jason on the show um, going back some now. He did a great documentary called The Human Longevity Project, right? And The Human Longevity Project is essentially uh, he traveled for two years to 52 countries and he went and looked at people that lived to be 100 or close to 100. And he said, What do you attribute your longevity to? And he had a questionnaire and came up with all the answers, right? And what was interesting is when he then mapped out what they ate, you know, so I won't get into the other stuff, what he mapped out when they ate, all of them ate beans, all of them ate grains, all of them ate roughly anywhere between 60 to 70% carbohydrate, um, you know, a small amount of animal proteins, et cetera, et cetera. So I just found that interesting because, again, when you've got people that are sort of looking at things a bit more myopically, and oftentimes there's a business agenda behind it as well. 
right? So if I'm going to go paleo, well, then I've also got a paleo cookbook. I've also got a paleo something to put in your coffee. I've also got a paleo supplement that's going to, you know, so there's that going on in the background as well. But it is interesting when you look at people who have lived to be so old in these communities, um, Japan, Italy, and so forth. Yeah, they're, they, they are eating a little bit of everything which is interesting. So do you feel like, you know, because the reason why I bring this up and I'll sort of throw this in here is I feel like a lot of people are getting bogged down these days with how to eat. They're so confused. They are trying to pigeonhole themselves into one specific way of eating. And I always say to people, I'm like, you know what, before you even go down that road, why don't you just start eating just a a real food diet? Why don't you start there? You know, Mm-hmm. and and go with that you know because if you're still eating garbage and now you're trying to also do keto or paleo or vegan or whatever well it's not going to work anyway you know yeah yeah agreed you know and something that you said about you know how they're saying that the lectins cause the inflammatory response i i'm not ready to sign on to that because there are so many lurking variables you know that we there are so many leukotrienes. There are so many things that can mm. create that response. Is it really a lectin that's doing that? Is it? Is it a lectin? Is it something else in your diet? Stress has a big impact. There's yep. a ton of lurking variables. You know, there's something that was very interesting when I was. You know, I had to go back to school after I I went to do my my master's in biochemistry, and so it's like okay, I was, my undergrad work is, you know, all in Spanish. And so you got to go back. And so I'm picking up all of my math, my calculus, several semesters and semester, dozens of semesters of chemistry and biology. And so in one of my math courses, I had to do statistics. And I'll never forget what my professor said on statistics. And actually, because I contacted him because I have such a very high success rate in my practice. You know, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. seeing like a wonderful result. And so I contacted my professor after I completed the course, but he'd also said this in class. Because at the, it was the last day of class after we took our final, he said, "Okay, so students, what have you learned in this class?" You know, and we're like, well, "What do you want us to say?" I mean, you know, okay, so we yeah. understand <laughs> about probability. We got, all, you know, we got, we got all the statistics basics. And he said, "You can make statistics say whatever you want them to say. Right. You right. can make them say whatever you want them to say." Mm-hmm. And so when I called him because I said, "Hey, you know, I know you're a statistician. You work at the University here, Wisconsin." I have gobs of clients and I just want, you know, would you go through and help me to organize this into statistics? He said, okay, just tell me how, what you wanted to say at the end. And then wow. I'll make, we wow. organize the data so that it says what you wanted the outcome to be. Yeah. So I said, well, I, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to do <laughs> the objective and see what it is. But that's the, that is the case with all statistics. You can make them say what you want yeah. to say. What are you looking yeah. at? Because there are so many lurking variables. You didn't bring in all the other things. Was this person, you know, this or that? Did they, were they under stress? Were they in a divorce? Were they taking a medication prescribed by their MD? What was that medication? Were they taking a supplement from this company or that company? Well, you know, what, what? we don't know. What are all the lurking yeah. variables? Well, I think this this is really the big problem with nutritional research, generally speaking, right, is yes. that, you know, we, we run into so many variables, we run into different, you know, I mean, genetics is another layer that we can throw on top, we oh, run yeah. into epigenetics in your environment, you know, that, that's a whole nother layer. So mm-hmm. to try and control for all of these variables in nutritional research and come up with a straight line where A plus B equals C is very, very difficult, dare I say impossible. And the, the, the problem with that, or if I can frame this a different way, this is again why I say to people, I'm like, you know what, before you start subscribing to very, very extreme or very limited things, 
just take a step back and just eat a wide variety of whole foods. Okay. I know we, we've sort of like definitions could get a little muddy here, but what I mean by whole food is just real food. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, yeah, food, exactly. Food food, food that you chew up in your mouth, not a pill, not a George Jetson. I don't know if you remember George Jetson. I do. I do. Yes. Yes. You just go and you get a pill and you swallow a pill and that was breakfast, you know, it's like, no food, eat food. Yes. Yeah. So, um, very interesting. And, uh, you know, just, just a great conversation. Um, you know, you obviously have been doing this for a long time, a great wealth of knowledge. Um, so I just want to thank you for coming on the show and, um, having a good conversation with me today. Oh, I'm so happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. And, um, yeah, I think we'll leave it at that. Um, you know, uh, I might get you back on the show to unpack a couple of other things and get a little bit more into the science uh, around surrounding things. Um, but for now, um, I think we're just over an hour um, on today's show. So we're going to mm-hmm. wrap things up. So um, thanks for again for coming on the show. And for those of you listening out there, um, I hope you learned a couple of things and just really enjoyed a, um, a casual conversation uh, between two um, nutritionists, in a sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, thanks again. And um, for those of you listening out there, you have yourself a beautiful day wherever you are. <laughs>